Our Father, in the stillness of this moment, again, we pause and we pray. And we ask for you to speak to us who are gathered here, to us who are attentive to your word. We ask, O Lord, that you would quiet our hearts, that you would quell all distractions, and that we would be able to hear truly from you today. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Do you ever have doubts? Do you ever have doubts? Doubts about God? Doubts about your faith? Doubts about your place in the church or your salvation? Have you ever struggled with anxiety about whether or not you were a Christian or about whether or not you were truly saved. You know, the Baptists, they have this doctrine called eternal security, right? You've probably heard about that, once saved, always saved, right? And uh, it's probably a false teaching according to how Wesleyans view the scriptures. But you know, Wesleyans, we have the opposite problem, don't we? Not necessarily eternal security, but sometimes eternal insecurity. Insecurity, where we are always anxious about our salvation. We're always wondering if we're doing enough, if we're doing the right things. We have this constant anxiety about whether or not we are truly saved. You know, a lot of the Wesleyans I, I interact with, some of you, some of, you know, people in my life, we wrestle with this idea. Are we holy enough? Are we sinless enough? Are we showing enough love? Are we doing enough right things? Especially in light of the verse that we saw last Sunday, uh, chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Right? That verse can, take a, or can create a lot of anxiety for some of us. Or verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And for those of us who maybe continue to struggle with some sins or have sin in our lives that, that we wrestle with, that can create a lot of anxiety and doubt. Or something like Matthew 5.48, where Jesus says that you must be perfect as, my, as, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, no one can see the Lord. These kinds of things Wesleyans kind of struggle with, don't we, sometimes, with the anxious thoughts that can arise. Especially for those who live through our history of legalism in our denomination, where the church had these long lists of things that you could do and things that you could not do, right? Uh, Those kinds of things could create a lot of doubts, in people about their salvation. Things like no dancing or no playing cards, no smoking, no going to bars, no no television, no makeup or jewelry. For women, long skirts. For men, short hair. Things like that. In that era of our denomination's history, and for a lot of people who grew up in that era and lived through that era, many struggled with doubts about whether or not they were saved. They struggled about whether or not they were doing enough things to maintain their salvation. They had doubts about whether they had really had a true conversion experience or whether they were really sanctified. I mean, they had a trip to the altar, sure. They prayed a prayer of consecration, but then they 
continued to wrestle with temptations and sins. And the doubts crept in about the genuineness of their faith. Have you ever had a doubt about your relationship with God? Have you ever doubted your place in God's church or your place in salvation? In a lot of ways, that's John Wesley's experience. John Wesley, of course, was the founder of our Wesleyan movement, right? Way back in the 1700s in England, he was the founder of the great Wesleyan revival from which we are the heirs today. In 1735, John Wesley set out on a missionary journey from England across the Atlantic to America, to the colony of Georgia, where he was intending to become the parish priest. He was a priest in the Church of England, and he was going to be the pastor of the congregation there in Savannah, Georgia. But he was also wanting to establish this mission to the Native Americans who were living in that region as well. And so he, he left England in 1735 with all of these great hopes about his calling and his mission and his desire to serve the people there in Georgia. But his experience in Georgia was a disaster. The mission that he had intended, he had intended to, to create to the Native Americans that never got going, never went off in great success. His church congregation found him too demanding in his ministry. He had a, a very high church kind of mindset and was very strict to the rubrics of the Church of England. And his congregation, uh, they, they chafed under that. He had a relationship with a woman in that community that did not go well. It did not end well. And she came from a wealthy family, well-connected family in that, that community. And it was a very public breakup, very dramatic. <laughs> and then the people chased him out of town. They, they forced him, literally, to leave Savannah and to go back to England. He returned to England a failed pastor and a broken man. As he was making the journey back to England on the ship, he wrote in his journal, January 24th, 1738, quote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? This experience of intense deep doubt following his experience in Georgia fast forward to that spring 1738 May 24th things start looking up for Wesley he's in the city of London and on the street called Aldersgate he's attending a Bible study there and in the midst of this Bible study he has this experience of God's grace this experience of God's assurance of his salvation and it really lifts him up in his spirits on that day in uh, May 24 1738 he says this I felt my heart strangely warmed I felt I did trust in Christ Christ alone for my salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins even mine and had saved me from the law of sin and death 
I felt my heart strangely warmed following this, this, ter this terrible experience in Georgia and all the d d doubt and depression that followed. Now Wesley goes to this Bible study and has this amazing experience of the assurance of his salvation that Christ Jesus died for him, even him. And there was nothing that he had to do to earn that. There's nothing he could do to, to receive that except be open to the grace of God. But quickly, quickly after that, new doubts came in. Wesley continues in his journal. But it was not long before the enemy suggested, this cannot be faith, for where is thy joy? This cannot be faith, for where is thy joy? A couple days later, May the 28th, he says, I waked in peace but not in joy. A couple days after that, May the 31st, he says, I did grieve the Spirit of God. Immediately, God hid his face, and I was troubled. A couple days after that, June the 6th, he says, I felt a kind of soreness in my heart, so that I found my wound was not yet fully healed. O oh God, save thou me and all that are weak in the faith. Save me from doubtful dispositions. Following his experience of assurance, the heart strangely warmed. Now his heart is strangely sore. Save thou me and all who are weak in the faith. Save me from doubtful dispositions. Even as late as October the 6th, that fall of that year, 1738, he still says this, I have not that joy in the Holy Ghost, no settled lasting joy, nor have I a, a peace such as excludes the possibility of either fear or doubt. See, even as late as that October, he was still wrestling with his faith. He was still longing for the fullness of the experience of the assurance of God. He was still wrestling with fear and doubt. In fact, it would take Wesley nearly a, a whole other year before he would fully be able to claim that, in, that assurance of his salvation. And it came only as he was beginning to set up the new Methodist communities in England. The class meetings, the society meetings, the band meetings, those kinds of society gatherings of Methodists. It was only when he began setting those up and only as he began field preaching in 1739, only as he began going to the coal miners early in the morning and preaching at 5 a.m. as they were walking to work, only as he began visiting the poor and only as he began visiting those in prison, only as he began to integrate more deeply into the community of faith, only then did he realize the fullness of his assurance. In other words, he came to the full assurance of salvation in the context of Christian community. And he came to the experience, he came to experience and share the love of God in community. Everything else was full of doubt and anxiety and insecurity. All those years prior to 1739, when he had been trying to earn God's love in the things that he did, all of that, 
created this doubt and insecurity. All his prayers and fasting and timekeeping and rules and regulations and meticulous journaling, all of his self-critique created doubt and anxiety about his salvation. All the while that he had been trying to be holy. But for him, faith came in community. Faith came in community. The assurance of that faith came by staying in and with the community. As he begins establishing those Methodist societies, begins going to the coal miners, begins visiting the sick and those in prison, it was in the community that his assurance of faith came. Do you ever struggle with doubt? Do you ever wrestle with doubts about your salvation? At the center of our reading from 1 John 3, we find these kinds of doubts. At verse 19, John says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. See, John is writing to this community, as we've seen, that has been broken. They've been torn apart. They've been divided. They are struggling in a lot of different ways. And they're, they're perhaps even left wondering whether or not the thing that they believe is the truth, whether or not the things that John has been teaching them are, are really true. They perhaps are feeling the anxieties and uncertainties about their salvation in their heart. They perhaps are lacking the assurance that they belong to God. After all, their community has been broken and torn apart. Other people have gone off to follow false teachers, and they have different views about Jesus and about the church. And those that remain are left wondering whether or not it's true for them, whether or not their faith is real. And even what John has just said two verses prior to this might also have stirred up their doubts and anxieties. Just take a look at verse uh, 17 and 18 again. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. For some people, perhaps in that community and perhaps in our community as well, those kinds of things might build up more and more anxiety. Am I really loving enough? Am I really showing enough good and doing the kinds of things that God has called me to do? As I come back to, to my house after work, did I pass by that beggar on the street? Did I overlook an opportunity to share God's love? And you can create all kinds of doubt and insecurity from that. Am I loving enough? Am I giving enough? What about all those times I failed to do what I was supposed to do? By this, John says, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Maybe this is you. Maybe you've had this experience of these doubts and insecurities in your own salvation. Maybe it's a result of the legalism that has been built up in your life. Maybe you struggle to, to see your salvation, the reality of your connection to God. Maybe you find yourself sometimes in seasons of doubt. Maybe your heart condemns you 
Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. I've had seasons of doubt in my own life. I've shared some of that before in past messages with you where it felt sometimes as if God were distant, as if God were silent. And it was a struggle sometimes to see whether or not I was truly a child of God. Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. John wants to show us that whenever we come upon doubts in our hearts, whenever we grow anxious about the state of our salvation, we have a God who is greater than our hearts. A God who knows our hearts. <laughs> and we can have the assurance that we belong to him because we are abiding in him. We can have the assurance that we belong to him because we are abiding in him. In a lot of ways, this goes all the way back to the beginning of the section, which we, we saw last Sunday in chapter 2, verse 28, where John said, Abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back at his coming. John wants his community to continue to abide in Christ because when we abide in him, when we remain in him, when we stay with him, we can know that we belong to him. So abide. God gives us the assurance of our salvation when we abide in him. Abide is an interesting word in in John's writings he uses it a lot not only here but also in the Gospel of John it simply means remain stay stick with stay with God gives us the assurance through our sticking with him <laughs> you see again John is writing to this community where others have left they've not stuck it out they've not abided and he's encouraging the community that remains to keep on remaining because it is in remaining that God grants us the assurance of our salvation. And then he describes this in two ways. See, God gives us the assurance through our abiding in him, and we abide in him in two primary ways. First of all, we abide in faith, and we abide in love. We abide in faith and we abide in love. And that is how we abide in God. And it centers itself really here in verse 23 where John says, And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. That we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. We abide in faith and we abide in love. And you notice how both of these things happen only in the community of the risen Christ. Only in the community of the risen Christ. So let's take a look, first of all, at what it is to abide in faith. Again, the first part of verse 23, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And in a lot of ways, this part of the verse parallels what we find in the first part of verse 16, where it says that he laid down his life for us. You see the connection between the belief in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and his, 
his act of self-sacrifice that Jesus gave his life for us. To abide in faith means to stay with the belief in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, that he laid down his life for us. It means to remain in God's love for us. Whenever your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. Why? Because of what God has done for you. In sending his son, Jesus, to lay down his life for us. And this anticipates what John is going to say in chapter 4, verse uh, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, it's through this love that we are called the children of God. As we saw last Sunday, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. <laughs> to abide in faith is to abide in the love that God has for us, to believe in that love, to give ourselves to that love, to trust in that love completely. Abiding in faith is about recalling what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And we stay in this belief when we abide in faith. We keep this faith by being grounded in the community of faith. By belonging to the church community of the risen Christ. Again, look at the language that John is using. In verse 16, he says, he laid down his life for us. In verse 23, he says that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. See, the, the communal language that John is using here is to, to communicate how all this faith comes and abides in the community of faith, in the community of the risen Christ. That is where we recall the activity of God. Remember John Wesley where he struggled all his life in those early years trying to be holy by himself, trying to do the right things, trying to keep the list of rules, trying to, to, to please God by what he did. But it was only when he started to engage the Methodist societies, only when he started to preach to the coal miners, only when he started to visit the poor and the sick and those in prison. It was only then when he started to engage the community of the risen Christ that he found the assurance of his faith. We abide in faith by abiding in the community of faith. And I found this to be true in my own life. In those seasons of doubt, I was held in the faith by the faith of the church. I found in my own life when I could not believe, the church believed for me and the church carried my belief until I could make that belief my own, my own again. It was in the fellowship of other believers. It was in the sacramental life of the church. It was in participation in public worship and in all the means of grace. That's where faith is found. And that's where faith abides. 
And so we abide in faith, in the community of faith. And that is one way we get the assurance of our salvation. But then the second part of this, abide in love, John says. Abide in love. And this is the second part of verse 23. Love one another. Love one another just as he commanded us. And this has its parallel, again, back up to 16, the second part of uh, verse 16. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Notice how abiding in faith and abiding in love go hand in hand. Sometimes we might think that they go one after the other, like we have to have faith first and then we can have the love for our brothers. No, John says that they go hand in hand, abide in faith and abide in love at the same time because as you abide in love, you then abide in faith all the more. And as you abide in faith, you abide in love all the more. They, they pour into each, each other. They are not sequential to one another but they are parallel abiding. <laughs> and also notice that you can only love when you are in community with others. You can't love by yourself. When John says love one another, it implies there's a community in which to love. When John says we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, that implies a community in which to do that. And so again, abiding in love means abiding in community. What does that look like? Well, he describes it very well in verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And John is not giving this as another onerous task to be completed. This is not a, a way to earn God's favor. This is not a way just to, to be a good Christian or to make you feel good about yourself. But this is simply an outflow of God's favor for us. It's not a way to earn God's favor, but it's a result of God's favor already for us. That when we know Christ has laid down his life for us, we can then go and lay down our lives for others. So again, do you have doubts about your salvation? Do you ever come to these seasons in which you have the anxieties about whether or not you are saved? John's instruction to us is to keep on abiding. Keep on abiding. Abide in faith. Recalling what God in Christ did for you. Abide in love as Jesus Christ did for you, you do for others. And when we abide in faith and we abide in love, we abide in God. And God abides in us. John concludes his passage at verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit he has given us. The spirit is given to us, the community of faith, the community of love, the community of the risen Christ. 
we can only love in community and we can only believe in community. We can only have the assurance that we belong to Christ in the community in which Christ has established us. By this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us.